Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. We've got another olden timey case for you this week because they seem to be quite popular with you guys and because we just love researching crime history. Because yeah. it's lots of fun. It really is. It's genuine, not sarcasm. I know we are fluent in sarcasm, <laughs> but that's a genuine thing. No, so um, these are always my favorite. And this week we are going back to the early days of the modern serial killer to tell the story of the Dark Angel herself, Marianne Cotton. Um, so it's no secret that women can be just as capable as men when it comes to serial murder, despite what many uh, sort of well-held beliefs about there are no female serial killers, what have you believe. That's not true. There have always been female murderers. And um, although Jack the Ripper may be credited as the first modern serial killer uh, at the end of the Victorian era in the 1880s, um, the Victorian era is actually filled with stories of female serial killers, specifically in the form of black widows. Uh, not the spiders. No. the Yeah. Well, the spiders may have been there, but, yeah. you know. Hopefully not. That's that's a lot to deal with. Um, whereas Jack uh, killed in the streets and put his victims on display, the area's female serial killers tended to kill in much more subtle ways, um, killing in their homes and focusing not on the act of killing and telling a story by displaying uh, their victims, but more on what the dead could do for them. And perhaps the most well-known of these Victorian-era Black Widows is none other than Marianne Cotton. So Marianne Cotton was born Marianne Robinson in Low Morsley, Hettenley Hall, which is now part of Hortonley Spring, just outside of the city of Sunderland in the northeast of England. And she was born on October 31st, 1832. Although... Marianne would only spend 40 years on this green earth. She sure made the most of them. <laughs> uh, preeminent British criminologist David Wilson has described Marianne Cotton as Britain's first female serial killer, with 15 confirmed murder victims and another six suspected victims in 20 years. So that's an average of more than one a year. Yeah. She's a busy, busy lady. Oh, yes. Um, so the eldest of Michael and Margaret Robinson's three children, Marianne led quite an unremarkable uh, childhood. Her father was a colliery sinker, uh, meaning he helped sink new coal mine shafts, uh, of which there were plenty in the northeast of England. Um, her mother, as far as we can tell, uh, was a housewife and you know, it wasn't uncommon for women, even in the lower classes, not to work in the 1830s. Uh, Marianne's sister, Margaret, was born in 1834, but died only a few months after she was born. And her brother, Robert, was born in 1835. At the time of her trial in 1873, local newspaper, The Northern Echo, described Marianne as having been a girl of innocent disposition and average intelligence and distinguished for her particularly clean and tidy appearance. When Mary was eight, her family moved to the village of Merton in County Durham, which was only like three miles away from Hettenley Hall, 
but it changed the lives of the Robinsons forever. Just two years after the move, in 1842, Marianne's father, Michael, fell to his death after falling about 150 feet or 46 metres down a mine shaft at the Merton Colliery. Basically, too far down to fall. Yeah, you don't want to go falling down mine shafts. No. Ever. His body was retrieved and returned to the family in a coal sack that read property of the South Hetton Coal Company. That is so messed up. That is cold. I just, uh, every time I read that little tidbit, it's so fucked. Yeah, like, what, you couldn't even put him in just like a, just a plane. Give him a, give the man a pine box. Some description. I mean, this is obviously before the funeral, but you know, Still. put him in some kind of container, not a cold sack. Yeah. Uh, the miners' cottage that the family lived in was tied to Michael's job, and so the family were due to be evicted shortly after his death. But the following year, Marianne's mother, Margaret, remarried another miner named George Stott. Um, at the age of 16, Marianne left home to become a nurse in the ho- home of Edward Potter in the nearby village of South Hetton. Uh, and he... And Potter was a manager at uh, Merton Colliery. Um, she remained in the Potter home for three years until all of the Potter children had been sent to a boarding school in the nearby town of Darlington. Uh, 19-year-old Marianne then returned to her mother and stepfather's home in Merton and trained as a dressmaker. I think I might retrain as a dressmaker. <laughs> it sounds fun. It does sound fun. And I already know how to use a sewing machine, uh, kind of. I, I've been, like, desperately wanting to uh, get a sewing machine lately because there's, like, you know, everyone's making these masks and I can't find one that works with my glasses and just, like, <laughs> I need I need a sewing machine. God damn it. You're going to have to get, like, a little portable fan and just, like, <laughs> have that trained on your glasses to, to keep them... I feel like... Keep them from steaming up. That's more effort than I'm willing to (laughs) exert. In 1850, at the age of 20, Marianne met and married a miner named William Mowbray. And the couple soon moved to Cornwall, which is a county in southwest England. Uh, And it was also another area of the UK that's known for mining at the town, although I think Cornwall was tin mining Mm. and arsenic mining as well. (laughs) How fitting. Now, records of this part of Marianne's life are sketchy, to say the least, as they often were in the Victorian era. Although births, marriages and deaths were supposed to be registered. um, And by the the 1850s, it was compulsory to register all births in the UK. It wasn't actually enforced until much later in the 19th century. But it is generally accepted that the couple had five children during their time in Cornwall. But four of these children died and there is only one recorded birth and that is their daughter, Margaret Jane, who was born in 1856 at St. Germans, which is a village in eastern Cornwall. Um, so at some point in the late 1850s, the couple returned to the northeast and William found work as a fireman aboard a steamboat sailing out of Sunderland. 
1858, another daughter, Isabella, was born, but their oldest daughter, or, you know, the oldest one whose birth had been recorded, Margaret Jane, died in 1860. Marianne gave birth to another daughter in 1861, whom they also named Margaret Jane. And in 1863, their son, Robert John William, was born, but he died a year later from gastric fever. Okay, can we please take a minute to just talk about the fact that there's two Margaret Janes? <laughs> like, I know Margaret was obviously her mother's name and her sister's name, so, you know, perfectly fine to keep, you know, keep going with that name. But why would you name your newborn daughter after a dead child? Well, so... It's funny that you bring this up because I actually have an example of this in my very own family tree. Ooh. Um, so my, on my father's side, great, great, great grandparents, I think, in the 1880s. So around this time, actually. Um, but this was in the United States. So uh, Silas... Webster McNeil and Zephra Coleman McNeil. Um, they had a daughter whom they named Minnie Maud. Uh, and she died at just one year old or less than a year old. And then they proceeded to have more children. Um, they had one in 1883 who they called Lucy Maud. And then... So, same middle Same name. middle name. And then okay. in 1884, they had another daughter and they named her Minnie Myrtle. So, we've got Minnie Maud, Lucy Maud, Minnie Myrtle. <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe it was a thing that people did. I mean, I don't think the children's names were actually as weird as the parents' names in that case. You don't think Zephra is a common name? Not in these parts it isn't. Maybe where you come from. She's actually... Um, her family was... Uh, I think her parents were Irish immigrants who left uh, during the potato famine. So That makes sense. Not from too far away from these parts. True, <laughs> but still, it's not a common name anymore, is no, it? No, but I kind of love it. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like a fun it's like a fun bit of trivia for your family tree. Yeah. So. Basically, names are weird, and people they're just sounds that we make. We decide oh, we'll no. make existential crisis people. territory. There, not let's not go there. <laughs> I cannot deal with that. But yes, so we've got Margaret Jane Jane the first, Margaret Jane the second, and Margaret Jane the second. Um. And tragedy did not stop there for the Mowbray family. And in January 1865, William Mowbray died from an intestinal disorder. But it wasn't all bad news for this budding black widow. Her husband and children all had life insurance. So upon their deaths, Marianne was able to claim £35 for William and £2 for each of her children. Now... £35 was the equivalent to about 18 months' wage for a manu manual labourer at the time. And today, that would be uh, roughly £4,400. And £2 would be about £250 today. So no, no small sum there. 
No. So with her insurance money, Marianne quickly moved to Seaman County, Durham, which is only about five miles down the coast from Sunderland City. But in 1865, that was plenty far enough to start a new life where nobody knew who the heck you were. Um, Marianne took her daughters, Isabel and Margaret Jane II, with her. She soon struck up a relationship with uh, a local man named Joseph Natris. That's with an N, not like... Yes, that is definitely an N. That is not a yes, typo. Yes, yeah. N- not, not like the squishy thing you sleep on, but Natris. <laughs> um, um, though some reports claim that the pair were having an affair before William's death and that Marianne had moved to see him to be uh, with Natris. Um, now, shortly after the beginning of this relationship, um, her youngest daughter, three-and-a-half-year-old Margaret Jane II died from typhus fever. Um, and Joseph Natris was reportedly engaged to another woman and Marianne couldn't get him to break off the engagement. And so after Margaret Jane's death, Marianne returned to Sunderland. So just to sum up where we are at this point, in case you're getting a bit confused as we did when we did the research for this. Mm-hmm. At this point, Marianne has given birth to nine children five in Cornwall and four in Sunderland. Um, Only one of the five born in Cornwall was officially recorded, and that was uh, Margaret Jane the first. And now, in 1865, eight of her nine children have died, as has her first husband, and they've all died of fever or gastric-related illnesses, uh, leaving only Isabella, who would be the sixth child of Marianne and William, that is some rough going. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I know infant mortality was really high in the Victorian era, which I assume is why people had such big families. Yeah. But one in nine doesn't sound like very good odds. No, it doesn't. I want to know more about all of these children whose births weren't like officially recorded. Well, we all would, but they weren't recorded. Well, I know, so but like, so their births weren't recorded and their deaths weren't recorded. And just, you know, it's interesting. But all of them had life insurance with Marianne as the beneficiary. That's co- quite um, convenient for her, which, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's how they kind of came to the conclusion that these other five children or four children were born who weren't recorded, whose births weren't recorded. There must have been insurance or something on them for there to be a paper trail of their entire existence. Isn't that amazing that you could have someone's life insured who, by by the opinion of the state, did not exist did at all? Yeah. <laughs> That's the state of the insurance game in, in the 1800s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it wasn't good. Um, so... Once she had returned to Sunderland following Margaret Jane's death, uh, Marianne took uh, a job as as a nurse at the Sunderland Infirmary House of Recovery for the Cure of Contagious Fever Dispensary and Human Society um, and sent Isabella to live with her mother and stepfather in Merton. Uh, It was while working at the Sunderland Infirmary House of Recovery for the Cure of Contagious Fever Dispensary and Humane Society that 
uh, Breathe. Breathe. <laughs> that Marianne would meet her second husband, George Ward. Oh, she met George Ward on the ward. No. How cute. <laughs> George Ward was one of her patients at the Sunderland Infirmary House of Recovery for the Cure of Contagious Fever Dispensary and Humane Society. Whose idea was this? Like, who named this poor, horrible place this long ass name? <laughs> Uh, the couple would be married in August 1865. So her first husband, William Mowbray, died in the January. Marianne moved to see him, had this fling with Joseph Natras. Mary Jane, uh, Margaret Jane II died. She then returned to Sunderland, sent her daughter Isabella to live with family, got a job at the infirmary, and then met and married her husband in less than eight months. That's impressive. She's, she's 32. At this point, I'm 29 and I have not done even half of this. No, I have not had nearly as many as nine children. Um, I mean, you have one wife. Yes. So. No life insurance. Oh. Missed out on that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Also, just like that's very efficient. Eight months time. Like regardless of all the other stuff. That's um, she's got a tight schedule. Yeah, that is. She's not hanging no. around. Um, so we don't really know much about George Ward, whom she met on the ward, uh, other than he was um, an engineer on a steamboat which sailed out of Sunderland. And at the time, Sunderland was like Newcastle to the north and Teesside to the south and was a huge part of the Victorian shipbuilding industry. Um, he was described as being a strong and well-built man. Oh, just set your heart aflutter with that. Uh, <laughs> and was expected to live a long life after recovering from whatever illness it was that he was suffering during his hospitalization at the wordy, wordy hospital. The place. Yeah. Um, but in October of 1866, just 14 months after his wedding to Marianne, George Ward died. Shocker, I know. Following an... Who saw that? I point? know, right? Following an illness characterized by paralysis and intestinal problems. I think we should start a bingo game for this episode. <laughs> Let's make a card. <laughs> Okay, so whilst you're now listening to this, it's at this point we decided to make some little bingo cards and put them on social yes, media. Yes, exactly. And whether or not we include this bit in the episode depends on whether or not we could be bothered. <laughs> You'll find out. Um, so, right, intestinal problems. Mark that down on your card. Um, despite this illness, the attending doctor said that he was surprised that George Ward had died so quickly. Um, the official cause of death was listed as English cholera and typhoid fever. So George Ward was buried the day after his death with no postmortem. And the following day, Marianne collected the life insurance money. Once again, keeping uh, it tight, keeping it yeah, running smoothly. a quick turnaround. <laughs> uh, she took a brief holiday following George's death, but once again returned to Sunderland, where she found work as a housekeeper to widower James Robinson. This is in the November of 1866. 
when she starts working for James Robinson. Now, it might not sound like much to say that, oh, she went on holiday, but holidays still weren't a big thing amongst working classes during the Victorian era. So, yes, obviously, side resorts, uh, Whitby, Scarborough, Blackpool were gaining popularity. And, you know, especially with, like, the railway and everything like that, you could travel around the country much easier. But it was still very much an upper-class thing to go on holiday. And it was still something that was very much out of reach of the general masses. Yet Marianne, you know, housewife, well, well, nurse, former housewife who then became a nurse, you know, daughter of a minor, managed to afford to go away on holiday. Yeah. So, you know, she's got plenty of money in her pocket at this point. She's been doing okay for herself. James Robinson was a shipbuilder living in the Pallian area of Sunderland. His wife, Hannah, had recently died, leaving him with four children, um, hence his need for a housekeeper slash nursemaid. Um, But within a month of Marianne taking on that role, the youngest Robinson child, 10-month-old James Jr., died from gastric fever. (laughs) Mark that down on your bingo yes. card. In his grief, James Sr. turned to Marianne for comfort, and a month later, she was pregnant. You know, it's funny. That's never happened to me when, you know, someone's turned to me for, for comfort or anything like that, or if someone's been grieving, I've never suddenly got pregnant. No, you know, can't say. That's a, a particularly common problem that I've encountered, but, uh, you know, I think Marianne had a very specific way of providing comfort Mm. very very fertile type of comfort very this woman is very fertile to begin with like (laughs) she's popping out a lot of children (laughs) um so after mysteriously comfortingly falling pregnant um Uh, The pair quickly got engaged, but in March of 1867, before they could be married, um, Marianne's mother fell ill, and so Marianne traveled to see him where her mother and stepfather were now living to care for uh, her ailing mother. Her mother was diagnosed with hepatitis, but was actually starting to recover by the time Marianne arrived. However, of course... She soon began complaining of stomach pains. And just nine days after Marianne's arrival, her mother died. Funny how she was getting better and then she got worse, but it's probably a coincidence, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Like, who would ever have thought that? Um, (laughs) Not to be outdone by his, uh, his stepdaughter, her stepfather immediately took up with his neighbor was also widowed. <laughs> uh, and so Marianne's eldest surviving child, Isabella, was brought back to Sunderland with, uh, with her and moved into the Robinson home. The nine-year-old Isabella wouldn't stay in the Robinson home for very long, however. And in April 1867, she suddenly developed Da-da-da. severe stomach pains. And died, along with two of James Robinson's children, Elizabeth and Jane. Um, And like all of her siblings, her father and her stepfather, Isabella's life was insured. And Marianne was the sole beneficiary. And she collected £5 
upon Isabella's death, which was worth over £500 today. Following Isabella's death, Mary Ann then went on to marry James Robinson in August 1867. Their daughter, Margaret Isabella, was born in the autumn. Which, again, creepiness of just reusing the names of her other dead children. Yeah. Uh, but Margaret Isabella died in February of 1868. Uh, the couple would then go on to have a second child named George, who was born in June of 1869. <sighs> so that is the 11th child. Dear God. I believe. It's so hard to keep track. Um, so... Uh, Unfortunately, the third time was not the charm for Marianne and her third marriage fell apart when following the birth of George. Uh, her husband James discovered that Marianne had run up debts of 60 pounds, uh, which would be about 7,100 pounds today or about $8,800. Um, and he also discovered that she had been pawning various valuables from the home. Um, James, which would all be his yes. valuables, remember, <laughs> not not even her own. No, all his all his not her own all stuff. his fancy stuff. So James threw Marianne out of the house. Um, some reports say that James retained custody of baby George, but others say that Marianne took him with her and left him with a friend, saying she would come back for him, but she never did. Either way, um, it seems like James and George had a lucky escape from one Marianne uh, in this instance. Yeah, and I forgot to put in the script, but uh, James refused to take out life insurance. Yes, yeah. On himself and uh, on baby George, which is probably why they both survived. Yeah, um, yeah because obviously Marianne doesn't have the money. Or she's at least keeping her own money and, and not taking out these policies. Yeah. But anyway, uh, destitute and out on the streets, Marianne soon took another housekeeping job. Uh, this time in the house of Frederick Cotton, a widower who lived just outside of Newcastle upon Tyne. So that's a few miles north of Sunderland. Uh, Frederick Cotton was a pit man who'd recently lost his wife and two of his four sons. And he was introduced to Marianne by a mutual friend named Margaret. Very popular name. Oh, Lord. <laughs> really, though. Uh, following the death of his wife, uh, Margaret had acted kind of as like a surrogate mother to Frederick's two sons. I believe she was a relative of some description. Yeah. But she would kind of moved in and although they weren't in a relationship, her and Frederick... Uh, she did kind of take on a lot of the like duties that a, a mother would usually have. Mm -hmm. So basically running the house, bringing up the kids, everything else women did in the Victorian era. Uh, but in March of 1870, uh, soon after Marianne moved in, Margaret became ill and soon died from an undetermined stomach ailment. Leaving Mary to help comfort... Frederick in his grief in her own special fertile way. <laughs> it's 
Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, and following said comforting experiences, Marianne quickly became pregnant with her 12th child. Uh, the pair were married in September of 1870, and their son, Robert Cotton, was born in early 1871. But if you might remember, Marianne was still married to James Robinson. So this uh, marriage to uh, Frederick Cotton was bigamous, if you will. Um, yeah. Now, shortly after the birth of Robert, Marianne discovered that her former lover, Joseph Natras, was now single and living alone in West Auckland, about 30 miles from Newcastle upon Tyne. So, of course, the pair rekindled their romance and Marianne convinced her new family to move to West Auckland so that she could be, you know, closer to Natras. Although, how she managed to convince Frederick Cotton to move so she could take up with her lover, we're not sure. Um, presuming that she didn't say it uh, in so many words. Yeah, we're guessing that she didn't you know, say, all right, we're going to move, you know, to West Auckland. You know, 30 miles is quite a distance in those days to just up and move. Uh, yeah, so we're going to move so that I can get back with my old boyfriend and you're still going to pay for everything and we're still going to be married, but, you know. Like, oh, um, I would like to move 30 miles away uh, so I can sleep around on you. How, do you, how does that sound to you, honey? December of 1871 shortly after the family moved to West Auckland guess what happened? I have a guess Frederick Cotton died from gastric fever that was my guess as with all her previous husbands Marianne had taken out life insurance and she was the sole beneficiary and following Cotton's death Joseph, Mat Joseph Natras I nearly <laughs> called him Natras <laughs> Joseph Natras moved in with Marianne and she took up work as a nurse for a customs officer who was recovering from smallpox. So again, records differ because why Why not? It's the Victorian <laughs> era. Uh, so we're not exactly sure of this officer's name. Some say his name was John Quickmanning, but there are actually no historical records for a customs officer of this name. There was, however a customs officer named Richard Quickman. So, whatever his name was, once he'd recovered, Marianne began an affair with him and quickly became pregnant with her 13th child. Oh, boy. I would just be tired if I were her at this point. Like, you're always pregnant. I mean, this, this is more than a lifetime's worth of gallivanting. Yes. Like... You're taking so much time. Like, you're always pregnant. You're always popping out babies. You're always killing husbands. Like, and she's only taken one holiday in this entire time. Like, I would have had to take yeah. way more vacations than that. And she's working as yeah. well. I mean, she's 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 doing it do, all. Do you ever feel like you're just not doing enough with your life? No, right? I feel put to shame by this... Uh, Victorian murderess. <laughs> um, so in March of 1872, Marianne's stepson, Frederick Jr., became ill 
and died from say it with us everyone gastric gastric we gotta work on that but i'm sure we'll have more opportunities before this episode is out um and uh that was soon followed by uh, the death of baby Robert Cotton, who died from convulsions. Um, the same month, Joseph Natras revised his will, leaving everything to Marianne. And shortly afterwards, he also died from gastric, gastric fever. fever. Uh, of course he did. And so what else? Marianne collected life insurance payouts on all three of them. And this left a pregnant Marianne with the problem of her stepson, Charles. Uh, now, his life was insured, but he was still alive. What a bummer for her. Yeah. Yeah. But that's quite a problem if you're trying to collect life insurance. Money. Yeah. Oh, oh, we're still alive. You can't have the money. Oh, exactly. Okay. Got to work on that one. <laughs> Uh, now, Marianne tried to send Charles to the workhouse so that she would not have to care for him, but the parish authorities told her that she would have to join him at the workhouse, which obviously Marianne did not want to do because you didn't want to go to the workhouse. You just wanted to send your stepchildren there. Yeah, I mean, we do not have time to go into the horrors that were the workhouse. No. Um, but suffice it to say that uh, there are reports of one of Jack the Ripper's victims. I want to say Marianne Kelly, but it might not have been her. Um, who, you know, frequently spent time in workhouses when she had nowhere else to go. And, you know, would choose to sleep on the streets Instead, if possible. Yeah. Rather than go to the workhouse. And a lot of the time they only went to the workhouses because the parish constables were busy clearing the streets so and kind of forced you to go there if you were sleeping rough so keep that in mind not someone somewhere marianne wanted to be but somewhere she wanted to send her stepson a child a step yeah um so when authorities refused to take charles to the workhouse marianne said quote i won't be troubled long he'll go like all the rest of the cottons and sure enough Five days later, the seemingly fit and healthy boy suddenly died. And um, unfortunately for Marianne, this particular death would prove to be her downfall. I mean, it's just very on the nose, it is. isn't it? You know? She really shouldn't have said anything. He's oh, dead. Shit. Oh, wonder how that happened. Yeah, maybe we should look at that. Like, <laughs> mm. So, so just to sum up again where we are at this point, because, you know, things have it's happened. It's very <laughs> confusing. There's so many people flying around this story. Yeah. Uh, Marianne has been married four times. Three of those husbands have died. Uh, the only one who didn't was James Robinson, who refused to take out life insurance on himself and his son. All 11 of her children with her first husband, William Mowbray, have died, as had her 12th child, Robert Cotton. No, he would be her 13th child, wouldn't he? Cause oh, because the, the daughter... George Robinson was the 12th. Because didn't she have a daughter oh, with Robinson, <laughs> too? Oh, yeah. So, 
So the daughter would be the twelfth child. The thirteenth child survived. Sorry, that would be that's um, George Robinson who survived. Yeah. So the thirteenth child, Robert Cotton, has now also died. See, even we can't keep track. It's so hard. <laughs> her mother died quickly when she took over nursing her. Um, Frederick Cotton's sort of living partner woman, Margaret, also died very soon after Marianne moved in. Uh, her lover, Joseph Natras, also died under her care very soon after revising his will. Her stepson died when she couldn't palm him off on the workhouse. So I think, now I think I might have got my counting wrong. That could be 18 people. It's either 18 or 19. Yes. It is far too many people. Yes. No, 18 people very close to have all died from a variety of illnesses, which were fairly common, you know, typhus, typhoid fever, cholera, gastric fever. They were all very common during Victorian era or Victorian yes. times. So, yeah, that is where we are. <laughs> um, so, following the death of Charles Cotton, Marianne's first stop wasn't the doctor or the coroner but instead the insurance broker's office um but the insurance company refused to pay out without a death certificate imagine that right go figure um so upon hearing of the young boy's death the local doctor william kilburn went to the police and persuaded the coroner to delay issuing a death certificate until an examination had been completed uh, but the cause of death was concluded once again to be gastric fever and therefore considered natural causes. Um, the boy was buried and Marianne collected the insurance money. But Dr. Kilburn had taken samples from the young boy before the official postmortem. And after the funeral, he began to examine them. And he found arsenic in Charles' stomach contents. Ooh. Who had that on their bingo card? Right. So we have talked about arsenic poisoning before in a couple of episodes, so we won't bore you with all the details again. But, you know, it's enough to say that all these other illnesses that those close to Marianne were dying from did have similar symptoms to prolonged exposure to arsenic. So if you were thinking that Marianne was, you know, equal parts unlucky in that everyone around her kept dying and lucky that she never caught any of these illnesses... And that she was able to claim on the life insurance, you would be wrong. Yeah. She's, well, she's making her own luck, if you will. Yeah. That's a very nice way to describe a murderer. <laughs> Brutal serial killer. Uh, I know it's not funny. Like, it's horrible. This woman has killed, like, sc like a score, literally a score of other yeah. humans but it's just so wild mm -hmm. that i can't help but just chuckle because it's it's insane that yeah. nobody had cotton cottoned on to marianne cotton at this point you know uh following charles's death local newspapers picked up on the story and quickly discovered that Marianne was frequently moving around the northeast of England and that she had lost three husbands, 11 children, a mother, 
and a friend, all of whom had died of stomach fevers or uh, similar illnesses. What a story that must have been. Like, whoever broke that for the newspapers was set for life. You know, but it's like a hell of a scandal. Oh, yeah. And, like, it's a hell of a scoop if you just kind of stumble into this. Like, oh, here's a, a multi-decade-long killing spree by this yeah. unassuming woman who... Yeah, and that's the other thing. She's not, like, obviously the way a serial killer looks doesn't impact on their crimes, but she's not like this, like, you know, femme fatale yeah. kind of person she's very average looking and she's also not like like if you think about the pictures of like amelia dyer she's not scary looking either like she's she just looks like you know your average victorian lady with her little hat and her giant skirts and yeah i mean her skirts were hiding all those secrets but you know yeah, that's like, you know, like in Mean Girls, her hair is so big because it's full of secrets. Her yep. skirts were so big because they're full of secrets. And arsenic. Yes. Full of arsenic. <laughs> um, so once Dr. Kilburn had completed his tests, police arrested and charged Marianne for Charles's murder, um, although the trial was delayed until after the delivery of her... Is it her 13th child or is it her... I've lost count at this point. Well, okay. Although the trial was delayed until after the delivery of her final child in Durham jail on January 10th, 1873, whom she named Margaret Edith Quick Manning Cotton. (laughs) Of course. So she's not only reusing the name Margaret, she's named the child after her father... And her mother's, you know, so the child is like quick manning, which is who her father would be. And Cotton, who her mother had already killed at this point. Yeah. (laughs) It's not confusing at all. It's fine. What are you talking about? Um, You literally could not make this up. If you tried to write this in story, if you tried to make like a fiction story about this, it would not work. No, like if you brought this story to a uh, like a creative writing workshop, the professor would be like, this is too much. You've gone too far. Hmm. And yet here we are. Here we are. Um, Margaret Edith was one of only two of Marianne's children to survive her. The other being her son, George Robinson, uh, whom she had with her third husband, James Robinson, also the only husband to survive. So Marianne's trial began two months later on March 5th, 1873 at Durham Assizes. Yeah, it's back. I knew you would be happy with that. If you don't know what we're talking about, you need to go back and listen to the Mary Bell episode. Yes. And find out why Taylor loves the word Assizes. Assizes. And for anyone who doesn't know, Assizes are an old form of court. Like, yeah. um, I think they were replaced by High Court in England in yeah. the either seven, 1970s or 1980s. But yeah, assizes were a type of court and they're great. We, we enjoy that name. It's a great word. It's mm-hmm. just great. 
So the defence argued that Charles Cotton had died after inhaling arsenic in the wallpaper of the family home, as arsenic was literally found in everything during the Victorian times. Uh, But this argument wasn't convincing the jury, who took just 90 minutes to find Marianne guilty of Charles's murder. She was sentenced to death by hanging, and Marianne Cotton was hanged at Durham Jail on March 24th, 1873. But she died, not from her neck breaking, as is normal in a hanging case, but by strangulation caused by the rope being too short. Quite possibly deliberately. And she was 41 years old at the time of her death. She died slowly and painfully. (sighs) Well... So did a lot of her victims. Yeah. Um, and she was only 41. She got all that done. Yeah. By We got like 13 41. years. I know. Got no, things No, 12 to do. years. Oh. Mm. Yeah, it was my birthday last week. I'm 20 yeah, now. Yeah, see. You're running out of time. I know. Go buy your arsenic. Um. Well, we have so, a lot of rat poison in the garage, so... <laughs> there you go. I'll do in a we pinch. need to find it. <laughs> and then find uh, a husband. Oh, yeah. There's that. Um, because Marianne maintained her is- innocence right up until the end, there are no records of how many people fell victim to her. And she was only ever actually convicted of the one murder. Now, most estimates fall at approximately 21 victims, So that's three of her husband's 11 children, her mother, a friend, a lover, and four stepchildren from her third and fourth marriages. It's just so many people. Um, And that is the story of Marianne Cotton, Britain's first female serial killer. Wow. Oh. What do you say to that? Like, <laughs> yeah, there is literally nothing you can really say to that, is there? Because she's said it all. She's done it all. Like, she's she's dispatched with everyone, over 20 people, literally everyone. Her mother, like, the only one who survived was her stepfather, right? Yeah. And her, you know, the youngest child who was born in jail. Yeah, and and James Robinson and George Robinson. Yeah. Like, that is a wake of destruction if I've ever seen one. Yeah. So, yeah, we really do not have much (laughs) else to say. Uh, yeah. Um... Throughout the recording of this episode, I have been writing down words to go on a bingo card. So we (laughs) will be making that. And uh, while you listen, which you've already just done if you've gotten to this point, but uh, you you should mark up your bingo card. Yes. Save them from social media, mark them off and post them and tag us in the photos. Yeah. Because we would very much love that. Yeah. This is a wild one. Yes. And so thank you everyone for listening. Come like I said, come and join us on social media. 
Square Mile of Murder podcast. Let us know your thoughts. Send us your bingo cards. Yes, please. <laughs> There's just no prizes, but, you know, it's just a lot of fun. The prize is, is listening and learning about this crazy yeah. woman's life. Yeah. Um, and if you would like to go just that one step further and support the show monetarily, you can join our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Um, all Patreons get uh, regular episodes a day early and for uh, $2 a month and up you get some exclusive merch that you don't we don't have anywhere else um, so if you're interested head to patreon.com slash square mile of murder for more info or to sign up and you can also find that um, link on our website and in the show notes for this episode so um, thank you for listening uh, our Patreon mini-sode for July will be coming out on Friday for our $5 and up patrons. And we will be back next week with another new episode. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>